1: Greetings Buff fans from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website and your host for the See You at the Game podcast. I'm joined today by Brad Geiger and we're going on a road trip to Seattle, Washington, a trip we took back in September 1989. If the 2020 schedule plays out, the Buffs will be traveling to Husky Stadium for a game on November 21st so it seems appropriate for Brad and I to discuss our first foray into the land of purple and gold. The 1989 Washington game was memorable on several fronts, not the least of which it being a matchup of two ranked teams, with Sear entering the contest, ranked fifth in the nation, Washington 21st. The Huskies were a quality team with quality coaches and players who would themselves earn a share of the national championship two years later. Washington, led by legendary coach Don James, was so good that their quarterback room boasted not one, not two, but three quarterbacks who would go on to play in the NFL. Kerry Conklin, Matt Brunel, and Billy Joe Hobart. Not all that impressed? Consider that the last time CU had any quarterback taken in an NFL draft was back in the 1997 draft when Coy Detmer was taken in the seventh round. Yes, Virginia, Washington was that good but would go on to be dominated that rainy September afternoon in 1989. The game was also memorable for the reason that it was the first game for the Buffs after the loss of Sal The Buffs had a bye week the weekend that Sal died, and the trip to Seattle not only represented CU's first road trip of the season, but the first game since the death of the Buffs emotional leader. I hope you'll enjoy our trip down memory lane, this time all the way back to September 30th, 1989. Okay, we are going on a road trip. We are going to take the Wayback Machine all the way to 1989, and I'm back here with my best man and best friend, Brad Geiger. How are you doing today, Brad?
0: I'm doing wonderfully. It is a beautiful spring day here in Colorado, and things are Slowly but surely opening up, and we are trying to figure out what our next step is in our world. So
1: it's been pretty good. Very good. Decided to use Washington as one of our road trip games because see you if there is going to be a full 2020 season. One of the road trips is going to be in Seattle at Husky Stadium this fall. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the 1989 sojourn that the Buffs took, obviously it was a non-conference game at that time, and take on the 21st-ranked Washington Huskies. One thing we didn't do when we did our lead-in to the, or talk about the Texas A&M road trip, we didn't talk much about the actual game. We talked very much about the trip, where we're going to talk about our experiences in Seattle, but um, we need to do a little bit better job talking about the background leading up to the game. So uh, do you want to talk about CU first? Do you want to talk about Washington first? This was going to be the fourth game of the season for both teams.
0: Well, I'll let you talk about Washington. I'm a little bit more knowledgeable about CU. But, you know, looking back very clearly, an argument can be made that that team that year was the best assemblage of talent and best coach team that CU had ever put on the field. And looking back, it's easy to tell that. We did not know that. We'd had a good season the year before, and we had expectations coming in, certainly. But we were convinced, or we needed to be convinced, that we were as good as we hoped we were. We were sure we weren't going to get the national credit. We had dealt with, and we'll talk more about, the loss of Sal and and what that meant for that team. But going in to say that we thought that Come January, we would be playing for the national championship at the Orange Bowl it would be wrong. We had expectations. We thought we could probably play with the other teams in the conference. But we were trying to figure out who this team was, and the nice and you know we had played well. We beat Texas coming in on sept- in September. We knew that running game could play, but then again, we fell behind Colorado State. And had to come back and yeah, that it was Colorado State and we we could beat them and we did eventually relatively handily. And then we beat Jeff George at home and just beat Jeff George into the ground and we began to realize that that defense was good enough to carry us there. But you know, we're three and oh, we've beaten Texas and Colorado State and Illinois and we are beginning to realize what's going on, but there was nobody, literally nobody, at the University of Colorado who was confident going to Washington that day that we were going to walk out with a win. And, yeah. You know, I don't know what the betting line was, but we didn't fly out confident. We flew up knowing it was a good team and hoping it was going to be a good game. So when you talk about that game, you have to understand the context that we knew we could play, and that was a new thing for us. But the idea that it was going to work out the way it did We
1: didn't know that. CU did start out as the number fourteen team in the preseason poll, but again, that was a a new phenomenon. We hadn't been ranked in the preseason in over a decade. We didn't know that CU was going to spend the next eight years in the polls, every consecutive poll through the middle or the early part of the nineteen ninety seven season. Again, looking back, you know this was a great team, but again, yes. We were eight and four in 1988, and had good expectations, but then of course CU lost its quarterback. People remember Darian Hagan as you know one of the top players in CU history, probably on the Mount Rushmore for many CU fans of all the you know all-time players at CU. But he was the backup. He wasn't even supposed to play in 1989, and so yeah, to have some tempered expectations had to be there. And, yeah, beating Texas on Labor Day night um, to open the season, 27-6. to 6. As you mentioned, he had to come back to beat. It was 45-20, but he was behind the Rams in Boulder. And then ten Illinois, with Jeff George, the mouth before. Well, it was the mouth after Brian Bosworth, but certainly had a great deal of confidence in Illinois. And beat them 38-7. Certainly... Made the nation stand up and take some notice. But if you think you look back, this game was televised by KCNC. You know, this was Dave Logan doing the call. This was not a national game. CU at this point was the number five team in the country against the number 21 team in the country, and it still didn't rate a national broadcast. So there was, uh, yes, more interest in the University of Colorado, but not necessarily the expectation that this was going to be one of the best teams in the history of the program. So, I mean, yeah. And and the names that, you know, Alfred Williams, uh, you know, those people
0: that we now worship, those were still players that we were trying to figure out. And honestly, Bill McCartney got better. I mean, that staff got better. Yeah. They understood what they had and, you know, they knew how to run that team. And, we did not know that going into the season. We saw glimpses of it, certainly at Texas um, in the runaway against Colorado State in the second half. But Washington, as I said, just went, oh, that's what we've got.
1: Yeah. Now, CU came into this game off of a bye week, but of course, it was one of the most emotional bye weeks in CU history. That was the weekend that Salonessi died. So, from a pure fan standpoint, you had no idea what sort of mindset the team would have. First road game of the year, Salonessi had just died, just had the funeral several days before the game. What sort of mental preparation could there be for a team that just lost their leader? And just a brief aside, if anyone out there hasn't seen Born to Lead, you know, the Salonessi story, i uh, highly recommend finding a way to to get to see that i will put a link to it on the on the website with the companion piece to this podcast it's certainly a a memorable story and lots of interviews with lots of the players and the coaches that were involved in that a very touching story and very moving story and we forget how gifted an athlete selenecy was cuz we only got to see him play you know for one season and like I say, if you have no other point of reference other than Darian Hagan being Salinesi's backup, that gives you some idea of what sort of talent uh, Salonessi brought to the field.
0: Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's—and that was an established in Washington team. They knew what they were doing. They had an experienced coach. They had an experienced coaching staff. They had experienced players. They were not the kind of team that we had in the past been able to play against.
1: And. Just for point of reference, so we can bring everybody up to speed to 1989. The team that CU went to play at the time was ranked 21st in the country. They opened with wins over Texas A&M and Purdue, rose to as high as number 11 in the country, and then lost on the road 20 to 17 to a number 23 Arizona team. And for some reason losing by three points on the road to a ranked team, they dropped 11 spots in the poll the week before the CU game, and we're the number 21 team. Talking about the legendary coach, Don James was the coach, legendary coach there. The assistant coaches are both familiar names. Gary Pinkle was the offensive coordinator for Washington, who went on to not only be the winningest coach at Missouri, but before he went to Missouri, he's the winningest coach in the history of Toledo Rocket football. And Jim Lambright was the defensive coordinator who went to succeed Don James as the head coach at the University of Washington. The quarterback room, I was, we were talking a little bit before we went on air here, just was stunning to me that the quarterback room at the time was Mark Brunel, Kerry Conklin, and Billy Joe Hobart, all three of whom went on to play in the NFL and some other names that'd be familiar to Buff fans of a certain age, Mario Bailey was wide receiver, Steve Entman played for a long time as defensive tackle or defensive end in the in the NFL. So this was a this was a quality opponent playing at home and looking back at the write up for the game story, I I remember I didn't remember this independently. I'm not that good. But they went and did their warm-ups in their purple jerseys with gold pants and then they came out for the game in all purple uniforms. And nowadays after the Oregon Nike bombardment of uniforms that we've had to live with for the last 20 years, that was a big deal. That was a unique thing for Washington to play in all purple uniforms. So the team was quality. The coaches were quality. There was lots of NFL talent on those in the lineup, and they were playing at home. And so it was by no means a, a, a gimme that uh, Colorado was going to win that game
0: it's an intimidating, albeit strange, stadium. One of the things that I remember clearly is walking in you this view. Washington Stadium is one of the very few in the country that can compete for sheer scenic beauty with Folsom Field. Yeah. You know, you look out over the sound. People drive their yachts to the game. Yes. <laughs> it's a completely different environment.
1: A water and commute. yet
0: they are not casual, rich fans. These people care about football. And it, you know, as much as anywhere else, we were the minority. We were in an enemy stadium. And these people took it seriously. They had lost the week before. They were there to beat us. And it's the kind of hard place to go into. It's a very vertical stadium. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of yelling. It's not an easy environment.
1: And. Back in nineteen eighty nine where we were sitting, where the visitors were were deep in the bowl. And this was before obviously the there was renovations done in 2013, but back then the track was still around the field. And so I my visual recollection of where our seats were high up in the bowl, we were like fifty yards away from the near end zone. We were nosebleed you know if anything happened on the far end of the stadium we just had to listen for the crowd response and if they didn't say any make any noise or weren't cheering then it must have been something good for CU because we certainly couldn't see 150 yards away as to what was happening on the on the far goal line but it was a spectacular view if you weren't interested in knowing exactly what players were on the field because you couldn't see that far you could just look out over Lake Washington and Look at Mount Rainier and all the boats out there on the lake and say this is not a bad place to watch a football game if you're not actually required to know where the ball is on what yard line or whether or not somebody got a first down on third and one. There is no way we could physically know that on our own. We needed the assistance of the uh, the crowd to tell us if they cheered, it was not good. If they were silent, then we knew we were supposed to start cheering.
0: I can hear The younger fans go, but weren't you watching the Jumbotron? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer would be, huh? Yeah. You know, this was really just kind of before (laughs) that we started, the stadium started to explode and to make it a little bit more of a fan friendly process. And so, no, we we knew that it was third and 10 because there was a little sign that said third and 10. (laughs) Um, Now, that did not necessarily prevent some of us from criticizing him, say, the placement of a ball yes, after yes. a tackle. <laughs> but yes. you could not, it was a different world that you could not know what was going on. Again, we were
1: 150 yards from the midfield strike. Yeah, and if, um, yeah. if you're old enough another reference would be, we we're, were in the Euchre seats. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, very definitely.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there was a a small band of of CU fans there. Um, We were were not completely alone, which was very helpful. Talk about the game itself. As it turned out, I mean, it was close for a little while, but it turned into uh, a complete route. uh, I I think we threw like four or five passes. This was at the time,
0: this was CU figuring out the running game. And people remember J.J. Flanagan. They remember um, Eric Biennemi, those people. But we could just, run against anybody you know George Hemingway would get you the four yards that you needed and always fall forward and about the time that the middle linebacker started hitting George Hemingway he was watching watching Eric Biennium go past him and it just the game again you're always anxious to start you always wonder what's going to go on it's close in the first part and then suddenly as so often happened that year they just started moving the ball and he just felt unstoppable at times.
1: Yeah. At the end of the game, it was 420 yards rushing on 60 carries. You can imagine that in this day and age? But 60 carries, 420 yards. So, those that have trouble with math like me, that's seven yards per carry. Mm. Uh, no, no one player had over 100 yards. But J.J. Flanagan, 85 yards. On only 14 carries. Eric enemy 82 11, Then Jeff Campbell at 56 yards, including a reverse that went probably about the 56 yards for a touchdown. That might have been his only rush. Darian Hagan, the quarterback, at 56 yards. Charles S. Johnson, the backup quarterback, at 47. And George Hemingway had 44, the fullback. So he had six rushers over 40 yards, none over 100. And, yeah, you're right there. Yeah, three passes in the game. Uh, <laughs> two were completed, uh, and one was intercepted. So no ball, pa- no ball thrown by Darian Hagan hit the ground.
0: Well, and I don't know what the time of possession was because that Washington offense could play. Yeah, you know, and I, I but when CU was run was running the ball like that, and. It is difficult to explain the excitement of George Hemingway for four, George Hemingway for three, Eric Biennemi for 12, and oh, by the way, here comes a reverse from Jeff Campbell. Or here comes J.J. J. Flanagan, who at his peak could be as quick as anybody on the field, blowing past a secondary and making a safety look like he was poured into concrete. It, it wore down. It, it truly demoralized teams. Because he just couldn't find a way to stop that running game. And I remember as the game went on, and especially on into the third and fourth quarter, we were talking to each other about the Washington defense looked exhausted. They had had lost any sense that they knew what was going on or where it was going. You know, linebackers, you could just see them with their hands on their knees trying to figure out what the heck they were going to do next.
1: Yeah. And it turned in, yeah. It was fourteen to six in the second quarter, but touchdown right before halftime, twenty-one six. Then it was 30, 17 to nothing in the third quarter. So at the end of the third quarter, it was thirty-eight to six, on the way to a forty-five to twenty-eight game. So Washington scored twenty-two points in the fourth quarter to make forty-five twenty-eight look like at least a, a competitive game, but it could have easily have been. 52 to 13 or something yeah. along those lines. So it was a, a dominating win, one that fans of CU for the last 15 years haven't really seen the likes of. Um, the 2016 team had some pretty well-played games, but it was not the dominating on both sides of the ball kind of game that the 98, 1989 team was capable of, of putting together in a 60-minute effort that just made you real excited to wear the black and gold.
0: Well, and the, and the glory of, of being able to run the ball about, like that and wearing it out is, you know, you've got a big lead, and Washington trots out after we've scored yet again, and somebody on the coaching staff goes, Alfred, hit the quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can turn Alfred Williams loose, there were times, and again, people... Now in Colorado, I know Alfred is a talk show host and a charming guy and a former Bronco. But there were times that season when he was unblockable. If he knew you had to pass, there were not two offensive linemen in the country who were going to hold him back. That was just not how it worked. And he just, I, I, I think I read he had, what, 14 tackles that day? Yeah. It felt like more.
1: Yeah. And it was just, it was exciting. It was fun to watch. As far as our personal stories, one of the reasons why, you know, this automatically came up to me as one of the road trip games I wanted to talk about, and I hope you remember this as well as I do, was the alma mater that oh, yeah. we did I don't know if it was late third quarter, early fourth quarter, either when it was thirty eight to six or maybe it was forty five to fourteen. Um the CU fans, of course we didn't have the band there. You know, so it was just the see you fans. Of course, after the touchdown, you sing the fight song, and we were all excited and having a wonderful time. It was starting to rain, and so it was starting to clear out. The Washington people were on to better things for their Saturday afternoon. But the CU fans, we weren't going anywhere. And I don't know how or why, but you and I broke out into singing the alma mater. And not too many fans at that time probably not too many fans necessarily even at this day and age, know all the words to the alma mater. But you and I know the words to the alma mater. And for whatever reason, we broke out into song and sang the whole word. Of course, everyone in the little section that was listening to us sing, they knew the end part. They knew the dear old CU at the end. And as I recall it, maybe you have a different recollection, but we got some pretty solid appreciation. We got cheered by our little group that we knew all the words to the alma mater.
0: We, you know, and it, for us, because we were now the old guys, we were the ones who had been around for the losing seasons. We were the ones who I like to think appreciated this in a way that some didn't. It was nice to be that leader. It was nice to be able to understand that. And yes, in my somewhat hazy memories, that was a group of people who came together and appreciated what we cared about.
1: Word of warning, anybody, if you ever go to a football game with me, I'm going to stay to do the alma mater. They do it. A lot of people are interested in traffic and getting down the turnpike, but if you're with me, you're going to be stuck with me to the past, the bitter end. Cause if we're, <laughs> if we win the game, I'm going to be there for the alma mater. And that's true at the, basketball games as well as the football games so and if you think about the words to the alma mater it it's a it's a fitting song i i get very emotional about the alma mater and i'm glad we got the opportunity to uh strut our stuff you know up in the higher decks of the husky stadium at the university of washington and then the second story i remembered i put down in the in the archives was when we were walking out of the game in the parking lot that we ran into a group of, I don't know if they were frat pledges or, you know, they were young, enthusiastic CU fans. And turns out a good chunk of them were freshmen. And they saw us wearing black and gold and, you know, invited us over and probably gave us beer because, well, we were at least old enough to drink beer. And it occurred to us, we talked about being living through the the bad years the chuckles that we got out of it, thinking that, you know, these guys, these freshmen that drove, they drove all the way up from Boulder for this game had never seen CU see lose. And this concept of being a student at the University of Colorado and having a top 10 team, an undefeated team, just blew me away. The other
0: thing I remember, and I, and I appreciate Washington fans. They, we had no incidents. They were, they were very courteous both going in, but even going out. And you know, the bottom line is, if you're a Washington fan who stays there to watch your team get blown out, you're like Stewart and I. You're a fan. And I remember more than one older fan, at least to me then, they were probably much younger than I am now, stopping to compliments. And some mentioned sound. Um, that was a national story. People knew about South, and some had talked and some talked to us about it, and they were very knowledgeable fans. They knew how good a team we were and they were very courteous about discussing it with us. That's one of the things that I remarked most about Washington is that they were fans of college football and they understood it.
1: And I think we've encountered that pretty often that the fans that are willing to talk to the visiting fans are not Taking fights, You know, they are actually fans of college football, and they're happy to share. They're excited to say, hey, well, hey, did you like our stadium? You know, of course, Washington Stadium, Husky Stadium, is one of the most picturesque in the country. And, you know, it's right up there with Folsom Field in terms of top stadium views in the country. And, yeah, they were more than happy to, you know, share of course they weren't super excited about their team going from number 11 to now having a 2 and 2 record. I mean they did go on to an 8 and 4 season. They beat Florida in the Freedom Bowl. They had a good year, but obviously they'd be disappointed in in getting not only beat at home but getting beat pretty soundly at home by a team that was now just becoming something less of an unknown and now becoming one of the top teams in the nation for the 1989 season. Yeah,
0: it was, uh, I mean, we've had so many good experiences, you know, in great places, in Austin, in uh, Athens, Georgia, in Texas A&M, as we spoke about the last time, even in Lincoln, uh, which is more challenging, especially in the times that we were there. Um, College football fans are, for the most part, and there are 5% who prove otherwise, just great people to be around. They're there for the experience, and yeah, they want to win. And as do we. And I am not always the best fan while the game is going on. But we have had just astonishing experiences traveling and getting to know people who love this game.
1: Well, one thing I have to add, and maybe I end up deleting this at the end, but I have to mention this. I, there's a picture that I took of you at the Space Needle. Of course, you know we went a little early and did some touristy things. <laughs> There's a picture of you wearing, remember the black jackets? Oh, yes. That, I don't remember what the material is. I'm going to say it wrong if I try and say what the material is. But it's slick and and had the gold Colorado and an arc on the front with the gold buttons. on uh, The Colo on one side and the Rado on the other side. And we have those jackets for a long time. I mean, it's kind of sad to say we had matching jackets. But they were very cool Colorado jackets I saw another picture of us with Woody the Woodpecker at, when we went to the Freedom Ball. So we had these jackets for a long time. And I just have to let everybody know that's listening that Brad Geiger lost my jacket. And it was at the, against the Syracuse at the Fiesta Ball. Went to play golf. Brad had the cart. It was cold when we started. It was warm when we finished. It was in the cart. Brad took the cart back, left the jacket. We went back to try and get it, and it was gone. And I have to this day. That was 1993. So we're at what 27 years that I haven't <laughs> forgiven you for losing that jacket because I haven't seen that style of jacket since. And uh, I will post a picture of Brad in his uh, in his splendor at the Space Needle with wearing that jacket. So those of a certain age will remember that style of jacket and. Will help me more in the loss of my jacket that you know one Brad Geiger lost in Phoenix in 1993. And
0: to make it even more worse, and to rub it in a bit more, I can walk literally 15 feet to my closet and pull that particular
1: <laughs> jacket out. <laughs> Thanks. It, re- it remains in a place of honor in my coat closet. <laughs> Fine. Uh. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, you know, there, there are errors made over the course of a 30-plus yes,
1: year relationship. Yeah, so uh, he denies having anything to do with the losing in my jacket, but uh, right. it is what it is. Well, I think I'm going to let that be the last word. We will talk again, perhaps at least one more time, maybe twice more, depending on how the fall of 2020 starts to come into play, if we can actually start talking about, the two deep roster or opponents rosters or things along those lines in future podcasts, that would certainly be the hope. But until then we will keep doing some road trips and doing some mailbags. And I appreciate Brad for hanging in with me and uh, talking a little bit about the 1989 CU trip to the Washington Huskies.
0: Well, and as always, I look forward to discussing the current and reminis- reminiscing about the past. Go Buffs.
1: Thank you for listening in on our second road trip segment of the See You at the Game podcast. You can find our first road trip segment detailing our trip to College Station to watch the Buffs play Texas A&M wherever you find your podcasts. I hope that as we expand our See You at the Game podcast library that you will subscribe to the podcast on your favorite site. And don't forget to post your comments and give us that all-important five-star rating. The next segment will be another mailbag and will be posted in a few weeks. So if you have any questions about the buffs, the 2020 season, recruiting, or anything else C-related, please feel free to drop me an email at any time at seeyouatthegain at gmail.com. This is our first season with the podcast, so your comments as to how the podcast can be improved and suggestions for future podcasts are most welcome. As we are coming to you at the end of May 2020, the fall remains in doubt, but there is greater optimism that the season will be played than there was a month or two ago. When and if the 2020 season becomes a reality and times are set for fall practices and games, we will, of course, shift our focus to the upcoming season. Until then, I hope you will continue to enjoy our mailbag and road trip segments. Until next time, go bus.
0: Thank you for listening to our see you at the game podcast for links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to see at That's the letter C the letter U at the com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to see at the game at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow buff fans until next time